All right, let's talk about your next patient. Okay, so this is a now 47-year-old gentleman who presented four years ago with recurrent episodes of abdominal pain. So actually going back to 2006, 7, 8, was admitted on at least three different occasions with abdominal pain, worked up for cholecystitis, for appendicitis, never really found anything. And then actually in 2008 had a complete colonoscopy, which showed a rectal polyp. And the polyp was removed, and at the cauterized edge of the polyp, there was a small foci of carcinoid in that polyp. But went back, we looked at that excision area, there was nothing there, and we actually re-excised more tissue, but there was no carcinoid in the rectum. So he continued to have these pains, 2007, 8, 9, up to his admission in 2010, when he, again, admitted with what sounds like fairly excruciating abdominal pain. You know, he's a guy, he's a robust, he's a police officer, doesn't complain of much. And they did a CAT scan and he had this mid-abdominal, it was about a three centimeter mid-abdominal mesenteric lymph node, kind of right smack underneath the small bowel in the mesentery. So he went to surgery to really to figure out what this was and try to look at you know, what might be happening. And he was found to have sort of studying of the small bowel with a tumor biopsy carcinoid. And I actually had a call from the surgeon that day kind of describing what was going on and, you know, should he try to be heroic? If he was going to try to be heroic and try to resect this three-centimeter mass, it was going to be mesenteric vessels, arteries, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, the bottom line, we said, no, no, this just kind of get your tissue and kind of move on. So I saw him, and we looked at his tumor. It was truly a carcinoid. It wasn't a poorly differentiated tumor. It was kind of your sort of -of run-of-the-mill carcinoid tumor. But he was having symptoms. He had measurable disease. He had this three-centimeter mesenteric lymph node, and we began him on, well, we worked him up. He was a non-secretory tumor, 5-HIA, chromogranin, LDH, all negative. His octreotide scan was negative. But we did begin him on monthly octreotide, which he has been maintained on since 2010. His abdominal discomfort is really, he's had maybe one episode over the last four years, but nothing that required even a call to me. And his scans show that he still has these small mesenteric lymph nodes, but this larger lesion has definitely reduced in size by about 60-70%. And when the surgeon examined him in the OR, he kind of ran the small bowel and he could feel small little nodules within the small bowel, so he does have, I am sure, intrinsic small bowel or mid-gut carcinoid. But he's now doing fine. He has not progressed. He's asymptomatic. He tolerates the octreotide fairly well and kind of remains pretty active. I'm kind of curious. Well, first of all, have you seen objective responses, Johanna, to octreotide alone? Yeah, I mean, occasionally you do. I think that was part of the impetus for the ProMed study is that though we'd been giving octreotide for a long time to try to decrease the effects of the secretory nature of carcinoid tumors, we always had thought, and it was anecdotally reported, that there was probably an anti-tumor effect as well. And in fact, we do have a molecular reason to believe that there's potentially anti-tumor effect with binding octreotide receptors on the neuroendocrine tumors. And so this is just a very nicely illustrated case of somebody who's had a very nice response. Any comments about dosing of octreotide? I think the NCCN had a report out at the last ASCO meeting showing there's a little bit of variability and also in terms of the intervals that are used. 
Absolutely. So we were actually having this discussion in the office. So the way that our octreotide injections, when we order them at my institution, are given as their 30 milligram injections. So we tend to give 30 milligrams every four weeks. For patients who have potentially slow disease progression or were unable to control their symptoms, we have bumped that to 60 milligrams every four weeks. There's also people that if we notice that octreotide doesn't last as long, we'll try to give it at more frequent intervals, but we don't go anything shorter than every three weeks for that. There's also some people that will give 20 milligrams, then bump to 40, then bump to 60. I think a lot of it is sort of practice patterns and habits versus shot size availability. But definitely you do see within the community people increasing the doses and or frequency of the octreotide upon disease progression or increased symptomatology. So hopefully he'll be stable long enough to wait for some new treatments to come out. Yeah, I'm hoping that we'll see some data from the SWOG study. I'm praying this year or next year, which has been long awaited looking at bevacizumab-based therapy for these patients. Now, what is the exact design of that study? It's a comparison of interferon versus interferon plus bevacizumab for patients with carcinoid neuroendocrine tumors. And what evidence do we have? I know Matt Kulke's done a lot of work on this in terms of anti-angiogenics in general in carcinoid tumors and bevacizumab specifically. Well, we know that carcinoid tumors are particularly vascular tumors and that different growth factor receptors seem to potentially have an impact on the growth of these tumors, VEGF being one of them. There's been several studies, most of which are smaller studies that combined both pancreatic neuroendocrine tumor patients and carcinoid patients into one study. But we've seen small phase two studies with bevacizumab as well as VEGF or tyrosine kinase inhibitors that suggest some sort of effect for patients with carcinoid, though that effect has only been proven in a randomized phase three study for pancreatic neuroendocrine patients. What about other agents? Obviously, everolimus and sunitinib have become part of management and pancreatic net. What do we know about these agents and carcinoid? And what would you be thinking about treating him? I think there was a paper on tembozolomide capecitabine presented at the GI meeting What are some of the options that these patients have, and how do you sort of think it through? Right. So for pancreatic neuroendocrine tumor patients, I think there's a little bit more options available to them, including sunitinib and everolimus. Of course, for both tumors, we still have good old streptozosin 5-FU or streptozosin doxorubicin, which have probably been more associated with biological or biochemical responses necessarily than radiographic responses and also associated with toxicity. The capecitabine temozolomide data is very interesting, particularly for pancreatic neuroendocrine tumor patients. And I think that has shown us some of the best response rates we've seen with chemotherapy for the neuroendocrine tumors. My personal problem is that when I've tried to get them for patients, at least in my practice, I've run into a lot of insurance issues with refusal of coverage. So I'm hoping that at some point we'll be able to have those available for those patients. People did look at everolimus in the radiant study for the treatment of carcinoid tumors rather than PNET tumors. The PNET tumor study was positive. The carcinoid tumor was borderline positive, but not enough for them to be able to take it to the FDA for approval. I do believe they are redoing that study currently to look at everolimus for patients with carcinoid. There's also been some phase two studies that have looked at things like combinations of bevacizumab with everolimus for patients with neuroendocrine cancers. And I think that there's more folks that are trying to look at more targeted 
targeted agents along the way. Unfortunately, we have not yet seen a trial for sunitinib for patients with carcinoid tumors. And in those with pancreatic net, how do you go about sequencing chemotherapy, everlimus, and sunitinib? Right. So I think that's so individualized on the patient. I think that if I have patients with liver-only disease, sometimes I'll try to look at liver-directed therapy options before I go to systemic therapy. And that's just a personal preference and, again, very case-specific. But if I do use a targeted agent, there's no data that says which one is better to use first versus the other. I tend to use sunitinib first and then move to everolimus unless I have a reason to not use an anti-angiogenic first, like if a person had uncontrolled hypertension, I was worried about coronary artery disease of some sort. And that's just a random choice. Truly, we don't know the right sequence to use these in. And again, Dan, maybe you can comment a little bit on him as a patient. I imagine particularly when he had that recurrence, I guess that was recurrence, it must have been kind of scary. What have you been telling him? What has he been asking you about what to expect from the future? Yeah, no, it was a very good discussion today. It's you know, for the last, what, four years, he's telling Joanna that he comes in, he's very easy to take care of. But his last visit, his wife came in and kind of wanted to know where we are four years into this. You know, they had been to New York for a second opinion, and at that time, they had been talking about the trial, looking at bactriotype in the 14 versus six months. So this is well over that period. They have two young kids. They were younger four years ago, but they're older, and they didn't want to blindside the kids with either news that was too bad or having them hear news from other people. So really a very open discussion that this is a disease that at least has given us a look, a peek at what its natural history will be, given the fact that it's been four years. So when we first met, some of these people progressed very quickly, even though under the microscope, they look like they're going to do fine. So I think they understand that in some ways they're fortunate that their disease is slow, was actually not progressing at all, it regressed. But they're also very understanding and open to the fact that things can change. And as he said, hey, listen, this is what I have. I can't change it. And I'm going to keep doing what I can to take care of it. So a very open couple, yeah, because the wife was with him today and she's very intuitive and smart. She kind of understands it as well, I believe. And I don't know if he's asked you this, but if he were to ask you, Johanna, what's the likelihood that this is going to take my life as opposed to me dying of something else, old age, et cetera? He's asked that in a very non-direct way today when we were talking. He said, do you ever see these things all of a sudden become aggressive and take over? And, and I said, not usually. They tend to stay in a tempo that they're in, though if people do have slow disease growth over a long period of time, you know, it can appear to become more aggressive. But I mean, I'm hoping that for this, and given how he's done so far for the last three years, I would hope that this wouldn't take his life, but it does have a chance to do so. I mean, he's a very young man. He's got a lot of life years left to live, barring any unforeseen complications. So, you know, the highest likelihood is this will come to head at some point in time. It's just a matter of when. So I don't know if he has researched this or brought it up, but what about radio-labeled octreotide? 
There was actually a presentation on that at the last ASCO meeting, Johan, and I've been hearing that now there are ways to get this treatment done in the United States. Is that the case? Yeah, I believe that there's trial centers that are opening in the United States. It formerly was available only in Europe, but they did present some data on responses to radiolabel octreotide, and we're hoping to get more experience with it here in the U.S. I think that, just like Dan said, for this particular patient, his octreo scan was negative, so he probably would not be a candidate for it, but for folks who may pick up the radio-labeled drug, I think it could be an interesting potential treatment option for them. 